0: Welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter.
1: And I'm Muni Jensen, still broadcasting from our homes. And at Altamar, we're committed, as our listeners know by now, to tell these stories that may have fallen through the cracks, especially now as everyone's attention, including ours, is focused on COVID. Today, we will talk about Iran post the death of General Soleimani by U.S. airstrike and its aftermath. Iran has been one of the world's hardest hit countries by the COVID virus, but despite the pandemic, it continues to be a regional power seeking to expand and expand its influence in the Middle East. On today's show, we'll talk about these regional ambitions, the continuing nuclear ambitions despite the Arab world's huge concern, the broken nuclear deal with the Trump administration and Iran's relationship with the EU, with Russia, and of course, with the U.S. And aside from the internal challenge of responding to the COVID crisis, the country faces multiple regional obstacles. To discuss this, we recently talked to Jared Blanc, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an expert on U.S. policy in Iran and Afghanistan about some of these hot issues.
0: Muni, I think it's important to mention that Iran has been struck by one of the most severe coronavirus outbreaks in the world. I want to reiterate that. It's one of the first countries with tens of thousands of cases and thousands of deaths, including some of Iran's most prominent parliamentarians and government officials. Iran's public health response to the crisis was slow, and the government's subsequent lack of transparency enraged so many people, both inside and outside the country. So let's quickly recap the multiple challenges faced by the Iranian government before and after the country's controversial management of COVID and before and after the Soleimani killing, which placed Iran so quickly back on the headlines. you got to remember in history that Iran is driven by an obsession with history. And, And it's not surprising, therefore, because Iran... You know, it's been besieged by interventions in the past. British and U.S. military presence in Iran dates back to the early 20th century with CIA and MI6 leading the way. The takeover of the U.S. embassy just after the Iranian revolution escalated repeated cycles of interference and proxy wars that have gone on for decades. And the aftermath of 9-11 morphed into this full-scale war in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of these things helping General Soleimani become one of Iran's most influential leaders. Attempts at nuclear negotiations under the Obama administration and the subsequent reversal in 2018 by Trump of these nuclear deals did little to change the tense, tense, tense reality on the ground.
1: And it is no more peaceful. Nuclear escalation remains a concern. Iranians are now heaving or still heaving under the weight of U.S. sanctions. The regime's popularity is low. The economy is weak. The voters are tired of repression and lack of transparency. They're dealing with this virus, but it's impossible to underestimate the Iranian regime. It has overcome many past hurdles without caving.
0: And, and if we look just beyond the ups and downs and highs and lows, and admittedly, there are just not a lot of highs of the U.S.-Iranian relationship, the fact is that Iran's religious autocracy has been in power for nearly four decades, and it's remarkably resilient. It's used proxies in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. Iran has bribed, threatened, cajoled itself into the role of the successful Middle Eastern regional power broker. And, it, and it's super important to note that they've shifted the fundamental crux of the Middle East constant crisis to a new and sort of highly ideological frontline. Indeed, the Shia-Sunni divide pitting Iran on one side and Saudi Arabia on the other has pushed the Palestinian-Israeli axis that dominated, dominated the headlines for so long, and it's created five international wars. That issue is now on the back burner.
1: That's true, Peter. Iran has used its resources, friendships, patient influence to grow its list of friends and allies across the region. And while many don't like the term Shia bridge from the Caspian to the Mediterranean, it's, Iran's proxies span an important part of the geography and Hezbollah exerts enormous influence in the Lebanese government thanks to Iran's money and tutelage. Assad in Syria is surviving and expanding its, his power with Iran and Russia's help. Iran's government is now Shia controlled with numerous Shia militia groups under its control.
0: And, of course, Iran has successfully engaged Saudi Arabia in proxy wars in Yemen. We can't forget that. Saudi oil fields are burning while Saudi Arabia's relentless air attacks on Yemen. And, and you know, I, there may have been a pause now, but uh, who knows if that pause is going to last, have earned worldwide condemnation and sowed turmoil within Saudi Arabia's armed forces. Mooney, just think about it. All this has occurred without a single bullet fired against Iran, not by Israel, not by the United States, not by Saudi Arabia. It's really not a bad outcome for a country that has been the target of sanctions, isolated from the West, repeatedly called a breeding ground for terrorism. They've done pretty well.
1: Well, let's add a U.S. policy towards Iran to the whole mix. It seems stuck in a debate of false choices. It's been marked by hawks like Secretary of State Pompeo and former NSA John Bolton, who are obsessed with regime change in Tehran. American allies in Europe are more aligned with Obama's approach and now have taken a much different approach from the current government. They're upset with what they consider the U.S. total alliance with Israel and the appearance of cozying up to Saudi Arabia. They're willing to take a path of diplomacy Boston while the U.S. is hardening its line. Europe has chosen to extend the deadline, for instance, for imposing new sanctions on Iran after it failed to comply with time limits for curbing the n- nuclear program. And essentially, the EU has sided more with Russia and China in looking for ways to continue to work through the U.N. to save the nuclear deal. So that's a big middle finger to the U.S. in an effort to save the program.
0: <laughs> well, look, let's, let's, uh, let's find some answers through our talk with Jared Blank about the outlook for Iran and the regional global implications of recent events in the country. Jared is a senior fellow in geoeconomics and strategy at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was the State Department lead for Iran nuclear implementation under President Obama, responsible for the implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action on Iran's nuclear program. That Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is the name of. Obama's nuclear deal. He was uh, previously the acting special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan and is an expert on conflict termination and political transitions. Thank you, Jared, so much for being with us on Altamar today.
2: Thank you. In
0: the aftermath of General Soleimani's death, what's your outlook for, let's start with U.S.-Iran relations, but you know, I guess I, my question is, does his death really mark a change of some sort or is it going to be pretty much reverting to business as usual? And I'm going to ask you the same question about more generally for the region.
2: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. In the context of Iran-U.S. relations, what I would say is that after Soleimani's death, we're in the same position, but worse. So the same position in the sense that the Trump administration has chosen a situation of crisis. We were in a situation of relative stasis. Iran's nuclear program was contained. It was heavily inspected. And Iran was certainly not quiescent in the region, but there were limits in terms of how far they were pushing against U.S. interests, targeting U.S. personnel, uh, targeting uh, our partners' oil facilities, that kind of thing. The Trump administration decided to pull out of the JCPOA and, and launch this program of economic, what they call, maximum pressure on Iran. And... In a very, very tactical sense, the program has achieved its goals. It has put Iran under tremendous economic pressure. They've got negative negative 10% economic growth last year. They've got high unemployment. Inflation has gone back up. Um, It's enough economic pressure to cause Iran to need to find a way out from under the U.S. thumb. And what they've been trying to do, in a sense, is to change the subject. So that's the attacks on tankers, that's the attacks on Saudi oil facilities, and then escalating to attacks on direct attacks on U.S. interests, taking down U.S. drones, um, allowing their uh, proxies in Iraq to target U.S. facilities in a way that they hadn't for years. There's no obvious way out of that sort of escalatory cycle. Iran still needs a way out from under the maximum pressure the United States still, the Trump administration still doesn't have a clear, realistic offer on the table about how they would begin a diplomatic process with Iran. And so Iran is going to continue to try to find ways to escalate, to change the subject. Um, So that problem of, you know, a a crisis, a conflict that is not stable, uh, is not sustainable remains. And now there's just more blood under the bridge with Soleimani's death. So that's not The fundamentals haven't changed, but it's a little bit worse.
1: So after Soleimani's death, it seems like it's business as usual in Iran. They've kind of realigned their their power. There's a lot of talk about the imminent threat of Iran. How true was that?
2: I'm not privy to the intelligence that the administration has, but it seems to me that if you look at the administration's actual actions, it's obvious that there was not an imminent threat. Why do I say that? First of all, because you don't go after a senior military commander in order to deal with an imminent threat, right? Like Soleimani wasn't the suicide bomber. He wasn't the bomb maker. Taking him out doesn't affect any plan that he had put into place. He's got an entire bureaucracy underneath him, which is capable of continuing those plans. And so the the act itself doesn't really square with the idea of imminence. And then second, the administration response after the after the attack on Soleimani um, was clearly demonstrated that they knew that the threat to American personnel and interests in the region was increased, not decreased by the attack. So they massively drew down U.S. embassy presences in Iraq and across the region. They pulled U.S. troops back to base in Iraq and stopped anti-ISIS missions. All of those things were a clear indication that they knew that in the Days after the attack, the threat was higher. So the idea that somehow there was an imminent attack and then things got safer, well, their own actions kind of preclude that as an explanation. And if I could just to, this is also a measure of kind of the other part of your question, which is um, what is the, um, what's the regional implication of Soleimani's death? Just to underscore Iran is a modern state with a modern military bureaucracy. By all accounts, Soleimani was an effective leader in that bureaucracy, and it's probably a little bit less effective, a little bit less efficient without him. But it's not like this was a cult of personality where you take out the personality and the structure is gone. There's a bureaucracy there, the next guy has taken over, and we shouldn't, I don't think, expect a massive degradation of effectiveness or a massive change of policy as a result.
0: Can we sort of take a wider angle like you know one could talk about the u.s iran relationship till uh till dinner time but but let's take a wider angle and on the region it seems to me that proxy wars have served iran well whether it's in lebanon or syria or iraq or yemen
2: i mean do you agree that iran's policies of the last 30 years have actually been pretty successful I guess it depends on on how you define success. Uh, you know, it's certainly the case that Iran has been very good at asymmetric national defense policies. Right, so we spend a whole lot of money, put a whole lot of resources in the region. Our partners into the region absolutely pour money into conventional military acquisitions and development. Iran spends much, much less in order to develop their ballistic missile program, in order to support their proxies across the region. And I mean, if you look across the last 20, 30 years, it's clear that Iran's influence has grown and our and our partners' influence has decreased. And so in that sense, sure, they've they've been successful and at relatively low cost. Um, by the way, it's a success that does not is not correlated really in any way to our Economic pressure, right? So the whole idea that U.S. uh, sanctions are going to cut off the flow of funds, Iran's ability to pay for these either ballistic missile or or regional proxy programs—it's obviously false. They they gain influence when there's chaos in the region because they play very well in a chaotic field. A lot of the chaos in the region—not all of it, but a lot of it—comes from bad U.S. decisions, right? So we invade Iraq, we create chaos. Iran benefits. We support an absolutely idiotic and immoral Saudi war in Yemen creates chaos, Iran benefits. Um, so in that sense, sure, uh, they've been successful. They've, they've played the game pretty well. Um, in a broader sense, you know, you're know, you talking about a country that should be rich, happy, and globally connected, and it's none of those things. And so um, if, if you see it from a very narrow lens of kind of what does the regime want to achieve in terms of its national security policies? Sure. They get a good grade. What should a government be trying to do for its people? They're an abject failure.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good answer to to the question. And I, and I guess I probably should have asked the question in terms of its regional influence, as opposed to just making it whether a success or failure, but let me shift the question just a bit. I mean, and the other thing that always surprises me about looking at today's Middle East is that since basically the late 1940s, the Middle East, the crux of the Middle East conflict was the Israeli-Palestinian axis. And it seems like that has gone into a incredible backburner, notwithstanding this peace plan that the Trump administration just released. And today, the real fundamental axis of the Middle East has become the Shia-Sunni schism. And... Is that a success for Iran? Is that something that has served Iran and this regime well?
2: I'm not sure that I would totally accept the premise of the question. I think it probably oversimplifies the region to say that, you know, there was this one major fracture point before, and now there's a different major fracture point. I think that at almost any point, we could sort of substantially complicate that picture of the region. Certainly now, you know, You've got Iran that has got some partnerships with uh, um, Sunni actors in Afghanistan. You've got Shia actors in Iraq, some of whom are more and less aligned with Iran's interests. So I don't think it's a totally straightforward uh, Sunni-Shia split. The other thing I think is that U.S. partners in the region, U.S. Uh, Arab partners in the region, have an extremely complicated set of perspectives on this problem. Right? They They wanted President Obama to take a harder line with Iran— I don't think they actually want the United States and Iran in a state of, of certainly war or even a state of kind of perfect permanent crisis or conflict. Um, I think they know that they would suffer most from that state of affairs. And that's why you see that as the Trump administration has kind of ramped up some of these tensions The Emiratis and to a lesser extent the Saudis have been looking for ways to back channel and reach out to Iran, sometimes front channel in the case of the Emiratis, um, in order to bring the tensions down a little bit. So I don't think that people in the region are looking for kind of a new Shia-Sunni cold war, certainly not a hot war.
1: Jared, it seems like division exists in the, in the Western world about what to do with Iran. Donald Trump, as you mentioned, stepped away from JPCOA in 2018, has been suffocating the Iranians with sanctions. Europe seems to be um, willing, at least more recently, to give Iran a break or at least some time to um, get their act together on the nuclear deal. Does Iran remain committed to this deal or is it just kind of kicking the ball down the road and, and gaining time?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly there is division in the Western world about this, that for many years, both in the United States and between the United States and our allies and partners, there was an agreement that Iran's nuclear program was the principal national security threat and therefore needed to be the priority focus of our attentions. That shifted amongst Iran hawks in the United States when the Obama administration put Iran's nuclear program into a box right they were the hawks were no longer satisfied because the excuse of the nuclear program was removed and that didn't but but the change you know amongst the hawks here didn't change the reality and it didn't change European perceptions that the biggest the most substantial national security threat was an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program and so Europe has stayed focused on that where the the Trump administration has had a Uh, well, a lack of focus in one way or another. Do they have more
1: leverage like they claim, or does the U.S. not have more leverage?
2: The U.S. has got leverage. Iran needs to get out from under this uh, sanctions pressure. Deals are not only about leverage. And I believe that by pulling out of the JCPOA, by alienating our allies and partners... The Trump administration has made a mistake. And what I mean by that is that whatever emerges is going to be worse for us, for the United States, than the JCPOA was. So uh, the whole constellation of of issues, right, whether it's leverage, um, alliances, trust, as taken as a whole, we are in a worse position now than we were before. To, to come back to your, the other part of your question, which is, um, is Iran committed to the deal? Well, I mean, Iran is in violation of the deal. They've been very transparent about that. I think up to this point, they've been fairly cautious in the way they've managed those violations in order to leave a way back in should the United States choose um, to go that route that could change at any point. But so far, I would say the the Iranians still seem to believe that the best way back to the table somehow goes through the JCPOA.
0: Let's explore these differences in the West vis-a-vis Iran a little bit more. I mean, the EU fell short of sanctions and enforcing the deadlines for compliance. Is this a deliberate way that you see the Europeans showing opposition to the US? Or what are the Europeans trying to achieve by making themselves so different from what they're, from the U.S. position?
2: The Europeans still believe what we all believed a few years ago, which is that the principal national security concern from Iran is the nuclear program. And so they are trying to leave open the possibility of a return to the JCPOA because they, and I agree with them, believe that that's the best starting point. It's to, to go back to the JCPOA and figure it out from there. Um, and so you know, the, whether, the, the, whether it's the, the sort of resumption of sanctions or the dispute resolution mechanism under the JCPOA, they're being very, very cautious about these tools in order to try to leave at least the husk of the JCPOA available for future use. What this means in terms of kind of their broader relationship with the United States, I mean, in an immediate sense, Iran is not a big enough issue for them to break with the United States. They're very, very frustrated with us, both our decisions and also the the totally haphazard process and communications by which we've made them. That's true of Iran, that's true of Russia, that's true of trade policy, it's true of China, it's really true across the board. Iran, though, is not a serious economic interest for Europe, right? So you'll sometimes hear people in Washington say that the JCPOA for Europe was all about trade, commerce. It's obviously false. Iran is, you know, a tiny, tiny potential trade partner for, for the Europeans. They are in this for the national security concerns, that's not enough for them to really find a way to defy U S financial power as expressed through our sanctions. So the things that they're doing, um, uh, like instec, this mechanism that's supposed to allow Iran, Europe trade, there's a political incentive, there's an economic incentive and you put it all together. That's not quite enough, but they might be working out the kinks so that in some future case where there is both a political demand and also an economic signal, they've got the ideas, they've got sort of the structures in place where they could actually make a, a more forceful break from the United States.
0: And what I find so frustrating about this as somebody who lives in Washington and is looking at this, you know, I one tries to look at this from a world and global view, but you know, we live here and Is that, you know, we have now a strange alignment of Russia, China, and Europe with the United States being alone, uh, as opposed to where the United States was, which was very much a leader on trying to find a consensus on on Iran.
2: It's certainly true that the United States is, is isolated here. And what we've learned over the course of the last couple of years, and I I think we've learned it, there was some question about it prior to the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy, is that at least in the short term, that isolation does not really diminish the United States' ability to create tremendous economic harm in a target country, at least a target country that is as vulnerable as as Iran. What certainly hasn't happened yet is any strategic accomplishment. Right. So we've achieved the goal of damaging Iran. We have not moved any closer to improving our own national security position. In fact, we're worse off today. Right. Iran's nuclear program has accelerated. Um, they're more aggressive in the region. And there doesn't really seem to be a pathway out from there and part of the reason for that i think is our diplomatic isolation that we don't have the the normal structure of alliances and partnerships that over generations we have been able to to mobilize largely to our benefit
0: i I presume that latin americanists who have seen this with cuba you know would tell the middle eastern academics that you somebody should have asked us the question (laughs) that's right
2: (laughs) yeah the question is, what are you trying to achieve here? It's a, so, so when Trump talks about Iran, he normally actually talks about it, at least he sometimes talks about it, in fairly limited terms, right? I want a nuclear deal. I want something on ballistic missiles. When his people talk about Iran, they talk about it in really almost messianic terms, you know. And I think that it's his people who have been driving the policy. And for them, it's probably adequate to create the crisis. And, you know, they've got a kind of sense, I think, I think that's insane, but they've got a sense that the, the crisis itself will cause breakdowns in existing relationships that will somehow result in a very different Iran. And, and I think that that's, I don't think there's any data to suggest that that's actually true, but I think that's probably what's driving them.
1: And yet there's so many contradictions. Uh, Trump imposed a ban on, on Iranians coming into the country. It was one of his first actions when he came into office. He claims that the sanctions are against the government, not against the Iranian people. And yet there's you know a million Americans of Iranian descent in the U.S. Their family members have a hard time coming in. If you ban people from coming, visiting family, how is that helping the Iranian people?
2: Well, yeah. And even actually some of the most sort of virulent Iran hawks in Washington are dissatisfied with the travel ban, which seems, yeah, I mean, that seems frankly more to have more to do with the sort of their, the racism in, in the Trump administration world approach than it has to do with Iran policy, right? From a narrow Iran perspective, I don't think anybody would make a case that the travel ban makes any sense. As far as, I, I actually don't, I mean, the argument that the sanctions are designed to target the government, not the people, is obviously false. Um, the The sanctions are designed to create a domestic crisis in Iran, and the way that they are supposed to do that is by making people poor, desperate, and angry. Um, I don't think that's going I don't think it's working, but that is the only possible explanation for the for for what. for for the sanctions as they've been put in place.
0: Yeah, and we should also say that sanctions is not only a Trump administration policy. I mean, there have been sanctions before on Iran and many other countries that were placed. Just The whole idea of sanctions is is really questionable in terms of as a strategic instrument.
2: I have used sanctions and think that they are a useful tool in American statecraft. The trick with them is that they need to be carefully aligned to specific policy goals that are actually achievable through economic pressure, right? So the JCPOA worked because for Iran, the nuclear program was not fundamentally a national security, national defense question. And for us, it was, right? Iran had stopped their nuclear weapons development around 2003, according to our intelligence community. Um, and so they were willing to trade that quiescent nuclear weapons program for economic benefits. The kinds of things that the Trump administration is now demanding are, you know, go straight to the core of Iran's national defense strategy of its regime survival strategy. And those are not things that Iran or anybody else trades for purely economic benefit.
0: Let me ask you one last question as we end this great interview. Is there any hope for a return to democracy for Iran? Is there... Yeah, you know, we've heard about in the post uh, Ukraine Airlines uh, a disaster that there were some protests in the streets. So did you see anything that would lead you to believe that there's a? Well, I guess one should say a, a hope for changing of the regime from internal pressure, and certainly, and would that ever come back to some type of a democratic Iran?
2: So, you know, the short answer is that neither I nor anybody else really has any idea. Regimes tend to look you know, pretty stable until they're not. And so I look at the situation in Iran and I say, yeah, there, there are protests and there's tension and there have been protests and tension before. And a lot of the same characters have looked at the protests and tension over decades and have said, this regime seems like it's about to collapse. And it hasn't. And so that makes me very skeptical of their claims this time around as well. What I would say from a U.S. policy perspective is that we do not need and should not build our policy around regime change in Iran or almost anywhere else. We should be clear about what our national security interests are. And in this case, we, our priority national security interests needs to be constraining Iran's nuclear program and making sure that it doesn't turn back into a nuclear weapons program. And we should use the leverage in our national power to achieve that goal. Again, going back to these kind of more, you know, these... Utopian messianic goals. Um, it it's hard to find an instance in American history where that's worked. And I it's this is not going to be one.
0: Jared Blank, thank you for joining us on Altamar today. Thank you all very much.
1: So, Peter, what we can see is that Iran is kind of a, a poster child for resilience, but this COVID crisis. Um, has weakened many countries, many developing countries, many strong countries that don't face all the additional challenges that Iran does in the region and in the world. Do you think it's going to be the straw that broke the camel's back?
0: I don't know, Muni. I have to say, like Iran, like every other country in the world, is wondering what the planet, what the region, what the country itself is going to look like in the post-COVID era. When can we open up? Those are discussions that we're having here Here. They're having them in Europe. They're having them certainly in Iran as well. And you know, I'm sure that opening up um, to a country that has have felt the brunt of sanctions, uh, that is uh, constantly in tensions with Saudi Arabia and with Israel, means also going back on the offensive. Iran has managed to be resilient because it has been on the offensive for so long.
1: I'm I'm left with two kind of thoughts. The first is that in in many countries, the leader has been blamed for everything that goes wrong during the crisis and, and gets very little credit when things go right. And I think a lot of the handling by Rouhani about the, of the COVID crisis is falling on his shoulders. The fact that he's easing or has eased social distancing and he's left the country vulnerable for a second wave. And then the second thing is that I wonder what U.S. Um, assistance offers for humanitarian help Will uh, how will that will impact relationship with the U.S. or will just embolden the Iranian regime? So these are all thoughts to have in mind as we uh, continue with this coverage and with this crisis.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's a really good point, and it can't be good news because uh, in the end, Rouhani is seen as a moderate, not not as a liberal, but as a moderate, as a moderating force to the most conservative part. So uh, if he's weakened, I I fear for what a post-COVID world can look like in the Middle East. But uh, we'll be talking about this certainly in days and months to come. Thank you for joining us on Altamart. See you next time.